0: You're listening to The Case from Israel, a new podcast on Israeli law and democracy from the Israel Law and Liberty Forum. Together, we're going to delve deeply into Israel's political and legal ideas, get acquainted with the major figures who have shaped our society, and share perspectives on the biggest debates facing this incredible little country as it continues to shape its very democracy after 75 years. Join this new discussion on Israel's past, its present, and most especially a vision for a vibrant and flourishing future rooted in shared values and a mutual commitment to each other. Let's work together to make the case. Podcast is in session. Welcome back for episode two. My name is Elena Meisel, and I'm a co-founder and executive director of The Forum, a project of the Tikva Fund dedicated to cultivating debate and conservative legal leadership within Israel's immensely influential legal profession. With me are my two excellent co-hosts and interlocutors, legal scholars Yonatan Green and Shimon Nataf. Israeli judicial reform is in the news constantly these days, but there's a lot of reporting on, without explaining the very important details of what different sides are arguing about. This is, without question, an existential conversation. And our goal at the forum generally, and on this podcast in particular, is to provide as much insight into the key ideas, debates, history, and of course, the law, that underpin, well, every conversation on Israel's Jewish character, its security, its economics, its educational policy, and so on. There's a lot of very significant news coming down the pike in Israel in the next couple of months, including the court deciding for the first time ever whether it can invalidate constitutional laws and whether to rule in favor of a civilian who is sued to disqualify the democratically elected prime minister from office for dealing with the issue of judicial reform. But to explore all of that in the right way, we need to know more about how Israel works, how incredibly and unusually powerful its legal system is, and the ways in which perhaps its entire political system requires reform in order to ensure long-term stability. We're going to continue our discussion today on the key ideas and institutions that shaped early Israel, looking at the way that uh, Israeli government uh, evolved. So we're going to pick up where we left off. Shimon, I know you've been dying to share with us uh, information about the Harari resolution, which was the compromise that was reached when the uh, initial governing body failed to create a constitution for the state of Israel. So talk to us more about that.
1: Yeah. So as, as we, um, as we discussed in the, in the last episode in the first episode, Israel was at the time in
0: turmoil and, and
1: the idea of a constitution, um, was uh, mentioned in the declaration of independence as that, as we said, was not really a real declaration of independence. It wasn't really agreed upon anyone. And some of the key, uh, 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 key members of the Knesset, key members of the government of Israel at the time, um, and Ben-Gurion, um, as we mentioned, was uh, headed this uh, the opposition uh, to the idea of a constitution, um, decided that having a constitution at the time, even though that was the idea, that was what was decided in the beginning to do, was not a good idea. It was not a good idea for all the reasons that we described. And, and generally, because it was just, uh, Israel was too divided, just started and the idea of trying to force agreements between very, very different factions of society at the time, political and social, uh, societal um, uh, differences, was just a bad idea. So what they decided in the end, and this is what we call the Harari decision, because it was proposed by uh, one of the MKs at the time named Harari, uh, Itzhak Harari, I think his name was, um, was the following resolution, and this is a resolution that was uh, that was uh, uh, decided by the Knesset. This is not a law. This is something that's in in in, in future uh, discussions. This will be. Um, um, this is a very important distinction, and you will understand later why. But this was a resolution. It was a decision by the Knesset. By, I think all members of the Knesset, or most of them. And it's not a law, it's a, it's a decision. And this decision stated the following. The first Knesset instructs the Constitution, Law, and Justice Committee, and this was the first Knesset, this is also something that we need to keep in mind, the first Knesset instructs the Constitution, Law, and Justice Committee to prepare a draft state constitution. The constitution will be built chapter by chapter in such a way that each will constitute a separate basic law. The chapters shall be presented to the Knesset when the committee completes its work and all chapters together shall comprise the constitution of the state. So basically what this decision um, was about is we're not going to have a constitution now but we're going to start writing it chapter by chapter until at some point in the future those chapters will be um, uh, incorporated into one document that will be called the Constitution of Israel and until then and this is the i think the most important part of the decision until then there would there will will not be a constitution to the state for to the state of israel so israel will not have a constitution until these chapters will be incorporated into the one one constitution constitutional uh, document and until then these basic laws will enjoy the regular status of every other law that the knesset passes
0: so just i want to be clear on the distinction between these chapters or the basic laws because they're, they're really in the news a lot these days, uh, the difference between a basic law and ordinary legislation.
2: So I'll, I'll say something about that, and then I'll, I'll jump back to what you once said. When we're talking about the distinction between basic laws and ordinary legislation, I'll look for a second just at the early 1950s, at the first Knesset, meaning let's not fast forward for a second about today, what those distinction may or may, may, or may not be. But in, certainly in those days, and for most of the history of the state of Israel, there was virtually no distinction, meaning basic laws in Israel since the Harari decision was just a fancy way to say an ordinary law that is kind of important or that we, the Knesset, attribute some kind of importance to. And pursuant to the Harari decision, it also meant it also meant that this was a potential chapter for a future constitution, meaning that uh, basic law was the way, since the Harari decision, Basic law was the way for the Knesset to signal to future generations that they were now enacting a piece of legislation which was a potential future building block of uh, uh, of the Israeli constitution or what you might call a draft chapter of the Israeli constitution. And this brings us back, and, and this is critical. Of course, we'll get, I'm sure, a lot, a lot more into basic laws and these distinctions, but basic laws are passed the exact same way as ordinary laws. Uh, they hold no specific or special standing or power. Um, and this has been the way that not just the public and the political establishment has seen it, but also the way that the legal establishment has viewed it for most of the history of Israel. And this is the way the Supreme court has ruled on many, 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 many occasions recognizing that basic laws are just ordinary laws where the Knesset slapped on the title basic law at the top. Um, I'll I'll say a word of background about the, the the Harari decision, because it's also important to to, to remember, Shimon mentioned the first Knesset, but the first Knesset was in fact the constituent assembly. So, Israelis, new Israelis, right, in the newly minted state of Israel, they went to the voting booth and they voted for a constitutional assembly. They did not vote Mm
0: -hmm.
2: for parliament. They did not vote for the legislature. They actually voted for representatives on this constitutional assembly that would put together a constitution. This constitutional assembly then sort of unilaterally decided for itself that it was not putting together a constitution because it was not successful and that it would uh, uh, henceforth function as... Israel's first Knesset. So it sort of morphed into Israel's first legislature. In fact, Israelis never actually went out and voted for their first... And of course, some Israelis were were furious about this, uh, probably most especially also on the right. And I should say that also the Harari decision, I think the right was fairly displeased with. I, I should generally say that the Israeli political right at the time, I think also today, but certainly at the time, was very much inspired by their sort of spiritual father, Zev Jabotinsky. And Zev Jabotinsky was, without getting too much into the weeds about Jabotinsky, he was a Republican, he was extremely strong on sort of classical liberal values, on limited government, on individual liberties, and they were very, very strong advocates of a written constitution that limited government in terms of its uh, treatment of the, uh, um, of the citizens. So they were, you know, the right was upset about both things. They were upset about the Constitutional Assembly becoming, um, becoming the First Knesset, and they were upset about the Harari decision basically giving up, giving up on the idea of putting together a constitutional uh, a constitution. For now, the last the, the last thing I'll say about the Harari decision, which I and this is really the the, the the key point. First of all, is the um the the translation that um, Shimon read out. You know, I think that the last word there was "comprised," right? All these different chapters will comprise will be, you know will comprise the uh, the um, constitution, right? The constitution in Hebrew it's not quite that's not really the translation in Hebrew in the original text. It's In the future tense. They shall comprise, but not shall comprise. They shall be aggregated, right? Compiled. They shall. Big be, pardon? Compiled, I think. They, yes. they, they, they shall be compiled, yeah. right? In uh, future, um, they, right? In the future, not right, in the present They shall sense, be yeah. assembled in the future, in the future tense, to become the constitution of his own. This is the most important thing to remember about the Harari decision, which Shimon says it wasn't a law. It was just some guy came up on the podium, Harari, read out the decision, and people raised their hands for or against, and that was it. They done and done. There was no, like, this was, it was not even part of the ordinary legislation, uh, legislative process. The key point to remember about the basic laws, certainly then, was that it was simply a way for the Knesset to say, we're stopping the constitutional project as we know it at the moment. We're putting it on hold. We will now continue to legislate ordinarily. Some of the laws that we enact, we uh, will consider to be potential future chapters of the constitution. we, We essentially will slap on the title, basic law, to a law that we think is a good candidate as a draft chapter of the future constitution. And for all intents and purposes, for any other, for for any context whatsoever, actually, they just remained regular laws. These were ordinary laws. Indeed, most of the basic laws related to fundamental questions of the organization of the state. So I think the first basic law, I think, was a Knesset, okay, so the Knesset, right? The the basic law of the Knesset. And then there was the basic law of the government and the basic law of the president and the basic law. So so all these basic laws, which were... um, uh, establishing sort of fundamental characteristics of Israel's sense of government. However, you know, two things that I'll add is that nobody thought that it was unusual or peculiar to have a basic law which related to something mundane, to something which wasn't a, a, a fundamental factor. And of course, uh, uh, later in, I think, uh, uh, you know, the, um, the budget ended up being uh, a basic law, right? The annual budget passed every year, every other year by the Knesset, that is a basic law. Just for example, this is not a, a fundamental question of government in Israel. And vice versa, there are fundamental laws in Israel. Which are key characteristics of Israel's system of government, which are not basic laws, and the, like the law of return. And yes. the obvious example is the law of return. So, and we can get more into that. But that's that's my take on the Harari decision. I just
1: wanted, I would just wanted to add another perspective, as as uh, again pushing back on your uh, very generous description of of the rights um, uh, support of a constitution at the time. The right at the time of the establishment of Israel, was in the minority. And, of course, they wanted the power to have the uh, option of going to the court and asking the court to strike down laws. So, of course, they were upset um, about the fact that the, the the ruling government decided that a constitution right now is not a good idea. Um, so just, just, to, just to add that small uh, perspective. Absolutely. And, of course, it's, it's not that I don't agree that they had very strong... Um, Um, arguments, um, essential and material arguments against uh, against that decision, but it was also, again, you can see that the ruling majority was against the constitution and um, the minority at the time was for. And I think this is also, uh, the reason this is important for me, I think, in this kind of discussion is because it it gives also perspective uh, for the future developments. Um, when that majority at some point became a minority and what they thought about a constitution when that happened.
0: So I want to pick up on that in just a a moment. Um, But I want to finish with a couple of dry facts about the basic law before um, addressing that question and then maybe devoting the rest of this episode to understanding more about the Knesset, how the Knesset works, um, how people outside of Israel may... uh, compare it to their own their own systems, um, even how a law is passed, because that's all stuff that's really coming to bear in, in the public discussion today. But on the basic laws, I think that building on what you two have, have said, um, it's very important to note that they seem to be passed kind of ad hoc throughout Israeli history. Um, and they're often formalizing certain arrangements that exist at that time, and then they're amended uh, several... Several times over. So, you know, the Knesset uh, Basic Law that that Johnny referred to, I believe, I, I think was passed in, in 1958. Um, the the Basic Law on the government, on the executive, as uh, Americans might think of it, was passed in in 1968 and then amended several times over. Um, and there have been amendments to to Basic Laws over over time. Um, so. When we think about them today, just to just to sort of emphasize their less than constitutional aspect, uh, that's something to to just keep in mind. Even the basic laws themselves have been evolving over time. They haven't. They have yet to be compiled. Uh, they have yet to achieve constitutional status. And in the interim, when there's a problem, very often the Knesset works to try and, and fix it together.
2: I, I just. You make such a good point about the flexibility of the basic laws and the way that they were constantly amended, the way that they were ad hoc. I think that, you know, Israelis and the Israeli political establishment was well aware of this and it was deliberate in the sense that they did not have this romanticization of these constitutional arrangements as if they were the smartest, greatest, wisest arrangements that could be. They were ad hoc. As exactly as you said, they reflected current arrangements that happened to sort of evolve into into existence, and they had no illusions about the sanctity, right, about the perfection, right, the perfect nature of these laws. This is nothing like the U.S. Constitution, after the Federalist Papers, after years of debate, after the greatest minds of the nation came together, et cetera, to put together this, this masterpiece, right? No one was under illusion that the Israeli constitutional arrangements or the basic laws that reflected them were some kind of ma- masterpiece. And they were amended often, they were enacted often. Um, and this is, I think, uh, also a really important element of the way the basic laws were seen and considered by the political establishment.
0: Um, I should note that today, uh, we're going to do, I think, a full episode on on basic laws uh, unto themselves. But today, one of the key criticisms by people who are opposing legal reform and who are opposing, let's say, the government's, um, well, the government's proposal to basically insulate basic laws from judicial review uh, say that one of the key weaknesses is that basic laws are so easily changed and so easily amended um, that they should be subject to judicial review. And that, of course, is a whole kind of... Yeah, I th- weird, th- I th- I weird think puzzle that's... unto itself because courts only got the right to override legislation by interpreting basic laws a certain way. But um, it is something that is a key part of the of the discussion today: is their flexibility and the ease with which you can amend.
1: Yeah, I just I want to say that that's in order to understand why that's such a uh, for me um, a disturbing argument. Um, I think we need we need a little more background. Really? Um, just saying just saying that the the, the problem is. It's, it's not only about being, the basic laws being um, uh, in, it, by design flexible, it's, it's more than that. It's the idea that once we decided not to have a constitution for the, for the time, at, at the time, until we do decide at some point to have that, the, the, regime, the legal regime that was currently accepted in Israel was basically parliamentary supremacy. That's, that's the idea that I think is the most important thing people need to understand when you talk about the legal system in Israel. Once the constitution was rejected, even if postponed, for instance, for, for if, if, that's, if that's what you want to call it or, or the way you want to look at it, what, what was left was just the regular British model of government where you have a parliament that decides everything, it can do anything it wants, it can pass any law it decides, and the only principle, the, the only legal supremacy principle is the supremacy of parliament parliament being the body that the people elect
0: so let's let's open this a little more that's actually a fantastic transition to discussing the Knesset and as you say parliamentary supremacy was uh, a key idea if not the key idea that, that characterized Israeli political life for many uh, years um, so I want to understand more about about uh, this concept and also it you know I should note that the people listening to this are not necessarily all familiar with the British system. So it's going to require even a little more background on that. So Johnny, you want to give it a shot?
2: Absolutely. I think also the, agree this is a excellent opportunity um, to to jump into that. So for all intents and purposes, since its founding, and really to this day, uh, the Israeli system of government has not changed much um, and has remained very much the same. It was founded as a Westminster-style parliamentary democracy, and this is based on the UK system. This means that you have a legislature, uh, or a parliament, which uh, generally that is the only directly elected branch of government. So people elect their representatives in the legislature. The legislature has, uh, I would say, two to three main functions, right? One function is the one that we're all familiar with, is legislating, is is um, enacting laws. The second function is... Is supervision of government, and we mean especially supervision of government agencies, government officials. Meaning, I'm not talking about the cabinet. I'm talking about supervision of ordinary, run-of-the-mill government, the type of government that every citizen, uh, uh, you know, comes in, comes into contact with on a, on, a, on a near daily basis. The bureaucrats, the, bu- the right, the bureaucracy, so to speak. The uh, right, the, the executive in the in the broader sense, and then third of all, and. Br- Conceivably, their most important function in in this kind of democracy, in a a UK, in a um, Westminster-style democracy, is that they appoint the government. They appoint the prime minister. They appoint the cabinet members. And, of course, this is um, an outgrowth or this is a result of the political power makeup of the legislature, right? It's a result of the elections. It's a result of what kind of coalition you build. It's the result of what kind of alliances are made between the different representatives in the Knesset, in the parliament. And ultimately this is reflected every, usually, almost always in, in every uh, election cycles, this is re- ultimately reflected in the makeup of the government itself. Who's the prime minister? Who are the cabinet ministers who have the different portfolios or are in charge of different ministries of government, etc. Um, So this is very, very broadly, Speaking, I'll go a little bit more, and Shimon can then and Elena can then fill in exactly what I'm missing and, and what I or, or, or more detail where it's needed. So one thing to note is that the Knesset in Israel is a unicameral legislature, meaning it has one chamber, not two uh, or more. There isn't a House of Lords, there isn't a Senate. Um, of course, there are plenty of other countries in the world that have such a system. Um, today, one of the more obvious examples I'll mention is New Zealand, just because, and New Zealand might come up. More than once in our future conversations, just because in some senses it's so similar to Israel in terms of its system of government. Um, so it's unicameral. It is a Israel is a single voting district. So Israel is not divided into separate voting districts, and representatives re- representatives in the Knesset in the Israeli Parliament are voted in through a, a direct voting process, which I'll, I'll, I'll get to in a second. But the point is, it's not a district-based represent, uh, representation. It's not that th- today there are 120 members of Knesset. It's not that there are 12 districts which each you know each vote for 10 members, or it's not that there are 120 districts which each vote for one member. So it's not a regional uh, um, uh, um, system of uh, uh, electorate systems. So
0: a proportional representation system. You get 10% of the vote, you get 10% of the Knesset. And I'll mention also that there's been uh, a lot of discussion in recent years about the extent to which the Knesset itself should be reformed, because uh, it's both incredibly centralized and appears to be too small to manage the load that it that it has. But right. we'll get into that at other other points.
1: I, I will. I will later maybe try to um, support, um, give at least uh, my, in my opinion, a strong argument
2: for this kind of system. So I mean, it, it's a really good point because in Israel, that's one of the things that has remained unchanged, right? Israel has had. Uh, Israel was founded with about six hundred. 1,000 citizens. Today we're approaching 10 million citizens, and we've always had 120 Knesset members, and this connects also later we can talk about sort of electoral reform and government governmental reform that has nothing to do with the legal system. so but as I mentioned, I'll just I'll fill that in. Yes, the the, the the electoral system in Israel is proportional representation. People vote for parties or lists, essentially, meaning parties are the organizations or the corporations which are behind the list. But essentially, you vote for a list of members, and then those lists are allocated seats in the Knesset according to the uh, uh, proportion of votes that they receive. So of course, I I, I Emphasizes the proportion of votes that they receive, not the proportion of the overall, uh, you know, from, from within the overall amount of voters in, in, um, in the country, um, or pot- sorry, potential or registered voters, right? It's from it's the um,
0: the proportion of actual votes cast. Um, so I, on that, I just mentioned again something that will probably open at a later time, which is that the party lists uh, come together in one of two ways. One is that you have certain parties with strong democratic traditions, like. Uh, like uh, the Labour Party, and like Likud, uh, that actually have primaries. Uh, Like the Religious Zionists too, I believe. Um, And then there are many other parties that simply have one party leader who puts together the list, which means that what happens in practice, and this was a growing trend over the years, and it's become something that may even be unmanageable today. What happens in practice is that the, the parties that have primaries have much less disciplined in terms of establishing their priorities and advancing them um, in the Knesset, and the parties where you're basically established by one person, where if you if you depart from their priorities, you're off the list, like Yeshatid or like Kacholavan, or I think possibly Tikva Chadasha I'm not sure. Yeah, um,
1: and Shas and Gimel.
0: And Shas and Gimel, of course. Uh, then you're then you're just not on the list, um, and so that leads to different political dynamics. But let's let's zoom back out again
2: so there's, there's no i'm sure we'll talk more about proportional presenta- presentation than in his problems in israel mm-hmm. there's no formalized rules about how you create a list right so you could vote for a list uh of a party which has compiled its list based on you know some internal vote of of, of party members and that's what we call primaries or, or not party members or you could just vote for any list right and somebody happens somebody who's very popular happens to put a, put a, a list behind him and you're voting really for that individual. And there's a bunch of people on the list as well, then uh, that's how the system works. I, I'll, I'll mention and of course, there's so much more to say about Israel's system of government, but I think I'll I'll stop over here for now. I'll mention two more things. One is that Israel is indeed fairly unusual. It is fairly unusual from a from a um, comparative perspective in its electoral system, meaning very few democratic countries in the world are a single voting district where at the same time there is proportional representation which is not an open list proportional representation and i'll elaborate on that for just one second there are countries which have proportional representation in which when you come to vote for a party you also determine the order of the party members you order you, you determine who gets in so let's say for example if you're going to vote for the likud party on the ballot itself you can mark which particular candidates you want to get in and then the people that make it into the knesset are, uh, reflect the actual people who voted for that party, if that makes sense. So the the only ones who get to decide whether who's on the list, for example, for Likud or for labor or whatever it is, are the ones who voted for that party. That's how it works in some other countries. In Israel, that's not the case in the sense that you could have enormous influence on who's on the list, and then you could vote for a totally different party. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 more so, of course, the question, the very process of who gets on the list, even in a party with... Uh, uh, with primaries is open to all kinds of horse trading, all kinds of peculiar sort of mechanisms for for appointing all kinds of pl- people to different places in the party, et cetera. I'm mentioning j- that just to say this is totally unrelated, but Israel, uh, whether this is good or bad is, is a different question, but Israel is an outlier in the sense that it is a single voting district with proportional representation without, uh, without uh, um, uh, an open list system. The one last point I'll make about all of this is that, which which I think colors in quite a bit of it, is that Israel is also, as Ilana also mentioned, an extremely centralized government. It still is in many senses, but it was far, far more so at the, at the time of the sta- founding of the state, that it was founded as a sort of, I'm not gonna say socialist, but as a nearly socialist or socialist-inspired system of government in many ways. A huge am- part of the economy was nationalized and centralized and, uh, and essentially run by the government, by the central government itself. Um, local government, sort of the the idea of local government, whether it's townships or districts or cities is, was always and still is fairly weak in terms of their own powers, in terms of the, the way that they can sort of define how they work. I'll not give the example of public transportation. So public transportation is almost fully administered top down by the central government, not by local municipalities. Um, the police memory from episode one is,
0: I know, right? Perfect. Pretty good. Right. Uh, Uh, um,
2: don't tell them they'll be recorded on the same day. Um, the police, right? There's a national police force. The police, you know, the police is not divided into different uh, districts or areas. There's one national police force, which, which is, uh, to some extent, we can talk about that later. Run by the government, at least uh, um, in theory. Anyway, all this is, is is to explain that, and that ties into also the um, the very, very powerful nature of the Knesset and of the way that it responds also to the public. Its centralized character. I I just want to add to that because um, I
1: think you described the whole thing perfectly. And I do want to say something about why, at least to starting to think about why this system might be the more ideal system for a country like Israel, unlike other countries like New Zealand, for instance.
0: Let me um, speak in your praise, since you don't tend to, and mention again in this episode that you're speaking as somebody who's just spent a very eventful year in the Knesset working as a professional legal aid to the chair of the Committee on uh, the Constitution, Law, and Justice, um, and in addition to that, you've been a researcher on uh, issues of, well, Israeli policy, but certainly statutory interpretation, on which you've just put out a book, and you've worked in the court. So when you speak, you're um, adding an insider's perspective that maybe not everybody has access to.
1: Thank you for that. Um, yeah, I, 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 my point, I think that at least this point I think is more general and I don't think I maybe has to do with my experience but it's just a more general very obvious point when you have a represent a, a proportional representation in the Knesset in state like Israel everyone gets to be included and that's a very strong argument for the system so you have the the most the smallest faction of the Arab, of the Arab community Gets representation in the Knesset. You have different factions of the Haredi, of the ultra-orthodox community represented in the Knesset with their represent, representatives. And th- this three point, different political parties today three, are represented. Three, three different, maybe even more, because you know within these political uh, um, factions you have all kinds of disagreements among them. So basically, this the idea. Uh, um, someone uh, once called Israel, Israeli society a society of minorities. Because you don't really have one majority that you can refer to as the majority of the state. You have all kinds of minorities, all kinds of communities and groups, and the uh, proportional representation in the Knesset gives each and every one of these groups representation in the political sphere to be a part of establishing and creating the public norms that we all uh,
2: live by, at least in theory. This is a wonderful... Uh, And this is a wonderful opportunity just to mention that um, throughout Israel's history, no single party has ever commanded a majority of the Knesset. So no single party has ever won an outright majority in Israel's history. It has always, government in Israel has always been on on, uh, coalition building. Um, At the very earliest stages of the state, it's true that uh, the basic coalition were two parties which were probably hard to distinguish in the sense that it wasn't only the Mapai, which many considered the ruling party, but an additional party which was part of the coalition was a kind of a satellite party to Mapai and Mapam Mapam, and probably uh, agreed on many uh, core issues. But nonetheless, uh, uh, factually, this this never happened. I have my own reservations and feelings uh, uh, when, we're, when we talk about the Israel system of, uh, Israel's electoral system and, and the benefits or disadvantages of that, but we'll save that for another time.
0: We will. And, and just to build on that before the next uh, question, I'll say that not only has, has no party ever won an outright majority, but the parties uh, have gotten more splintered, more diverse. Uh, the Knesset itself is weaker, right, than it was at the founding of the state. Uh, I think people have gotten, uh, that impression certainly from the past few years where we had a cycle of five elections in three or four years, but more generally, I think that the average life cycle for a Knesset should be four years and ends up being two and a half in part because of these really, um, intensely jockeying diverse interests that eventually, uh, you know, realize that their different priorities will, will need kind of a reboot. So they go to elections. Um, I think one of the key questions that that um, certainly Americans would have, possibly others as well, is is the extent to which the legislature and the executive are intertwined. And that's really, again, become something that is talked about today, because the argument is, well, you know, there's the court, there's the legal system, but then there's these other two branches of Israeli government that are effectively, some would argue, one, right? Um, and the argument has changed over time as to whether the executive is considered to be the big dog that manages the Knesset or the Knesset manages the executive, but regardless, this idea that the executive is effectively um, also people who serve in the legislature is uh, something that I think unsettles people who are looking in from the outside um, and don't understand the distinctions, meaning the idea is if you put all of the power... Or as much power as possible. Or if you follow this idea of parliamentary supremacy that we still need to unpack, uh, if you if you basically focus that those resources in the Knesset, okay, then you have made this entirely a function of a majority rule, um, and there's even no balance of power between the executive and the legislature. So what it, what can you say that might address some of those concerns?
1: So. Um I think we should first look at the source of this uh, kind of the parliamentary system, the Westminster system, and that is, of course, the UK. And what you see in the UK is the idea that the government is the there the separation of powers between government and the legislature is indeed um, weak. It's not. It's not as we as Americans know it to be. You don't. You don't vote for the government uh, uh, directly. The, the government is voted upon by the legislature. Um, so the difference is not institutional. The separation is not institutional as it is. It is, of course, there is still a difference between the, the institutions, but th- those institutions are very much, they work together in many, many in many senses. Um, um, but the 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 separation between these two institutions is more functional. than than institutional and when you think about the separation of powers We all know that the separation of powers is divided into two kinds of separations, right? We have the separation, the Montesquieu uh, kind of separation, the the functional separation between the legislature executive and uh, the judicial branch. These are three different branches of government that do different things. So you have the first branch that legislates. Those are the the laws, the big laws, the laws that govern everyone. And then you have the executive that's supposed to um, function as uh, boots on the ground, as they say. According to the law that the legislature passes. And then you have the judiciary that um, judges according to the laws and also has judicial review over what the executive does. So those are, that's a functional separation of powers. You also have a an institutional separation of powers, and that is very stronger than the U.S., in the U.S., because you have the president, which is the executive, and is elected separately. You have the legislature, and with among the legislature, you have two different institutions of legislation, and of course, the Supreme Court, that is, uh, again, a completely different institution, although it is selected by the, uh, the political branches. And my point is, Try, when you try to understand the Israeli separation of powers system, it's just the regular parliamentary Westminster um, separation of powers uh, um, system. And that is a very widely accepted separation of powers system in the world. You have it everywhere. You have it in Canada, you have it in Australia, you have it in New Zealand, of course. And I'll just one, one last point, point. this is important. In Israel, in fact... The situation is even, is even better because of the, of the, of the proportional representation system. and the, the point that you never have a majority of one party in parliament. And if you look at the UK, for instance, so you can see that sometimes the ruling party controls not only the government and controls entirely controls parliament. So the situation in Israel is, in fact, much better in, in the sense that in that kind of sense. Because you always have to have some compromise with other parties. You never have one party that controls everything, and and um, just to, uh, another clarification on, on that point, which has to do with my I think my experience in the Knesset. So some argue the government is controls the the Knesset somehow the Knesset of course is legislature people think that the government controls the legislature and that's the way it works is completely the opposite I wouldn't say the opposite but it's a completely different setting what happens is when a government is formed in Israel you have a coalition of parties and parties who agree uh, among themselves on issues, and they decide they want to form a government. And then usually, what happens is the largest party and the head of the largest party becomes the prime minister. And then he gives different offices, different uh, institutions to of, of the of the executive to the um, different parties among this coalition. And then you have a body that's called heads of coalition, and they convene from time to time, and they decide practical and ideological issues. What are we going to agree on? What are we going to promote? And those are basically the people who control the government and the Knesset. They decide what the government is going to do. And the government can't really do, do anything um, without the agreement, without the consent um, um, from the heads of coalition, because the heads of coalition control um, the the political configuration. They control the fact that we all support the government because the Knesset supports the government and the government can always dissolve once the Knesset um, decides to do that. So what really controls the government in Israel, and this is, I think this is a very, very important point to understand, what really controls, the people who control um, the government in Israel, and that's the government and the Knesset and the majority in the Knesset are the The different factions that are together in agreement um in a coalition. So it's the agreements that control the government and the Knesset. That agreement between between the different factions of the coalition, between the different parties, that agreement, those those parties, and of course, their representatives in the heads of coalition forum, those are the people who uh, who decide which laws we're going to support. Um, are we going to support some, some government agenda? Are we going to support some government decision, specific, uh, specific decision, particular decision? So claiming that the government controls the Knesset is a completely um, uh, wrong perception of, of the way things work. The way things work is the different parties who comprise the agreements that brought upon the government who control the majority in the Knesset because they are the majority in the Knesset those are the people who control the policymaking in Israel. So instead of having the, the idea of having a government that decides everything and then everyone thinks about the prime minister, the prime minister can't do anything without the agreement from his party, from his friends, um, parties on, uh, in the coalition. Can't do anything. And of course, and each and every one of those parties can't do anything by itself without the consent and agreement from their friends in the coalition. So it's always the majority of the Knesset deciding. And the way, of course, again, the the majority of the Knesset can't just convene every time and decide, what, it's 64 people now? 64 people deciding, coming together and trying to discuss and decide something. That just doesn't work. But the way it works is that the heads of coalition, the people who represent these factions, these parties and their interests, um, these people convene and decide what policy decisions should be promoted.
0: Okay, Shimon, uh, that was, I think, a very illuminating explanation of the relationship between the Knesset and the government, uh, the uh, legislature and the executive. Um, and I think just to sum up that your, your basic point is that there's often an incorrect argument that you have a small executive that effectively dictates all sorts of priorities to the Knesset, and um, in that way, Israeli democracy becomes the centralized Um, wish list of just a few people Um, and then your point really is that it's the Knesset which represents um, a lot of variety and a lot of different conflicting priorities which from there elevates them up toward the government very often. So I think that that's something as with most things that we'll be able to explore more in depth in in another episode and I want to conclude this this episode with just a few minutes on the concept of parliamentary democracy which is of course uh, it's parliamentary supremacy, excuse me, which is of course, um, um, a related, a related concept, but it's, it's just so important that I don't want to let this second episode go without discussing it more. And I think one of the key questions for people abroad, um, especially those who don't live in a parliamentary democracy, but even for those who do, and who think perhaps that Israeli institutions don't sufficiently check each other is, okay, let's assume that based on what you've just said, um, the power really does emanate from, from the Knesset. We don't have a written constitution. If the Knesset is supposed to be, in fact, more powerful and to have the ultimate say on policy, um, as opposed to the executive and, and the court, what really checks it? How do you stop the, albeit diverse majority, perhaps, from being able to trample the rights of those in the opposition?
2: So obviously, I think this, this is the sort of the typical question that comes up in the context of par- parliamentary supremacy. And I'll just I'll tie those things in because I'm sure we'll talk so much more both about parliamentary supremacy and the relationship between the executive and the legislature in Israel. The reason these two questions are related, and we'll also come back to that, is that if you're going to argue for parliamentary supremacy, it means a lot if somebody argues or there's a lot of weight behind the argument that says that actually the Knesset is subservient or the Knesset is dominated by the executive and they call the shots. So of course, that's where these two conversations connect. Uh, But of course, there's much to say about that relationship um, regardless. In any parliamentary democracy, which does not have a constitution or parliamentary democracies, which do have a constitution, which do not have judicial review of legislation. That also happens, right? In, like in the Netherlands. Like in instance. the Netherlands or in Switzerland. Uh, and of course, uh, Australia for most of its existence. Uh, uh, Canada for most of its existence. So, so many, many countries which assumed correctly that one of the options... Uh, uh, is this idea of parliamentary sovereignty, and of course, I hasn't had as you said. We, we said New Zealand. We said, of course, England, right? The 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 uh, bedrock and uh, uh, and mother of parliamentary democracy throughout the world. Um, uh, this is certainly still a very much alive uh, um, idea. So, what are the checks? And we, we can do this sort of very, very very briefly. Of course, the ultimate check on parliamentary democracy is, first of all, the elections and the election cycles, and the fact that um, the people in the knesset serve at the pleasure of the public they serve in regular um secret you know they're 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 appointed by regular secret ballot um and i know this is a bit of a cliche and of course we'll get more into this later uh but that is a true and ultimate and primary check on on power that's true for any government that's true for uh the executive uh, an, an elected executive that's true for parliament in the country in israel specifically The system of proportional representation, the the, the requirement for for coalition building means that um, power in the Knesset, power of the parliament, is inherently limited all the time. Meaning you can see how governing coalitions in the Knesset—and this is Israeli experience, but I'm sure this is experience also abroad—you can see how governing coalitions in the Knesset— are simply unable to pass policy that they're interested in, even if there's a consensus, because public opinion plays such a strong role. Because the media and uh, and uh, journalism and public debate plays such a strong and protests or whatever it is plays such a strong role. Meaning, you could have solid majorities in the Knesset who are still unable to pass uh, key policies uh, uh, that they want to. And of course, this happens uh, elsewhere as well. And I want to remind—I just want to echo what she once said because I think the comparative question is often important. Parliamentary democracy, whereby the executive serves at the pleasure of um, serves at the pleasure of parliament, is the norm. That is the standard model for most democracies around the world. Right? This is not this is not something that's unusual. Even though we have probably a large amount of our audience are Americans, but for many people. Uh, who are not American, we're sort of explaining sort of trivialities. These things are obvious. Of course, when the executive is subservient to the Knesset uh, or to the uh, uh, parliament, uh, it's impossible that they control the parliament. Just about everywhere in the world where there is parliamentary supremacy, you also have um, this Westminster-style system where uh, um, uh, uh, the executive serves at the pleasure of parliament. So these issues are, of course, um, deeply related. And I'm sure we'll also get back um, in much more detail to the questions of both the ways in which um, I don't think it's true, of course, that the executive sort of controls or dominates uh, um, the legislature in Israel, and also in the in the way that um, uh, the Israeli system itself uh, includes all kinds of inherent checks and balances uh, between the uh, uh, different branches of government, and that inherently limit the power of the Knesset itself to make all kinds of harmful or problematic decisions.
1: Yes, I, I would just add to that that when we talk about the idea of separation of powers and checks and balances, um, I think, first of all, I think that's a secondary question. Um, we should maybe, I will say a, a few sentences about, about the idea of parliamentary sovereignty and parliamentary uh, supremacy to begin with. But I'll just, I'll just add to that point. Um, when we talk about the idea of checks and balances, the, the goal of that idea is limited government. It's the idea of trying to make it more difficult for a government to do things that are too powerful, might hurt minorities, all the things that we are scared of as liberals from liberals in the classical sense, um, from the government. We're scared, we're afraid of the government um, and, and we, we view the government as something that we need to be, we need to be careful with. And the, and the idea of checks and balances is just one of those arguments for, or mechanisms for limited government. In parliamentary democracies, that idea is manifested through the, the electoral system and the political configuration within parliament. And in Israel, it's even more, it's, 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 I think it's the, in, in its strongest form, it's so difficult to pass legislation in Israel. I have been, I, I was now, for, for the past seven months, I was a part of the system, and I can tell you that I think it's more difficult for 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 the Knesset in Israel, for the majority of MKs in the Israeli Knesset to pass legislation than it is for senators, for, for, for Congress to pass legislation in the U.S., even though in the U.S. you have a very strong separation of power, institutional separation of powers, even though because of the of the of the two party system in, in, in the US, when you have when one party controls all government systems all government institutions, it's much easier for it to pass um, legislation. And in Israel, you never have that. You never have control over the entire legislative and executive system. You always have to consider the different parties and their insight and their and their opinions. And and I want to go back and say just the, the uh, and this is the point that I think people should walk away from this episode with, and and the idea of of parliamentary supremacy is the idea that if you don't have a constitution and we don't, the only legitimate thing that you can work with is the body that the people elect. That's the only body that we can actually we can look for uh, look at and and consider its decisions as legitimate from a democratic. And classical liberal sense. So when we talk about parliamentary supremacy, when you don't have a constitution, it means that each and every law that the parliament and in Israel, the Knesset passes, enjoys the full legitimacy of what democracy has to give.
0: I think that's a great place to wrap up episode two. And next time I want to dive uh, more into the practice of of parliamentary supremacy and to see um, where it protects or, or rubs up against human rights with some concrete examples, I think would be um, advantageous. Uh, I want to thank you both for a rich discussion. Looking forward to next time, of course, and uh, it's possible that next time we'll even be able to integrate some listener questions. Uh, after our first few episodes, we'll also start inviting some guests from all parts of the political spectrum to engage with us, and to help more deeply understand the debate on major issues in current affairs. But for now, podcast dismissed.
1: Very